I'm going to talk about Virginia Woolf both as a voice hearer in, in all kinds of different ways, really, um, and also as probably one of the most famous of 20th century novelists. I want to start off with um, a quotation that's a bit of a gift to this project, and I, I come back to it um, a number of times. It's, it's by the, the, the contemporary novelist David Mitchell, who describes writing a novel as a kind of controlled personality disorder. To make it work, you have to concentrate on the voices in your head and get them talking to each other. He seems to imply that there's something about human cognition that makes us prone to breakdown, mental breakdown, but that is also uniquely connected with our capacity to create imaginary worlds and beings that seem to possess minds of their own. So how might we explore the connections between hearing the voices of inner speech as the ordinary kind of going about one's business, everyday kind of thinking that's constantly chattering away in our heads? The process of the more controlled process of getting voices talking together and the creation of a fictional world, or the experience of perhaps losing control of voices or being overwhelmed by them, as in distressing or psychotic experiences where we seem even evacuated from our own minds or, in popular parlance, off our heads. The exhibition Hearing Voices, Suffering, Inspiration and the Everyday explores overlapping phenomenologies of voice hearing, creative, distressing, visionary, everyday, through a range of perspectives, scientific, philosophical, literary and creative work. And we've tried to show how voice hearing isn't extraordinary, although it can be extraordinary. It is the experience of thinking. It's a common experience in grief. It's a common experience in spiritual insight and conversion, in voluntarily dissociated states such as meditation, following traumatic events and abusive experiences, during prolonged stress or, de or sensory deprivation, perhaps during depressive rumination, or hypervigilant states that are a response to threat or hazard. So today I'm going to try and focus some of those initial thoughts through thinking about literary creativity in relation to Virginia Woolf in particular. She's probably the most famous of all voice-hearing novelists, the most experimental, the most focused in her writing, perhaps, on the exploration of the mind in this kind of context. But of course, as soon as I say this, we run the risk of reductionism, various kinds of reductionism. The psychobiographical, which she hated, she said a writer's world is in their head, it can't be reduced to bricks and mortar. But also, within a project that's working with a scientific, a neuroscientific and cognitive scientific understanding of voices, the risk of treating her as a kind of case study to feed into more quantitative or statistical kind of thinking. The other risk, and this has been a huge one in criticism on Wolf, is of reducing her to yet another pathographic reading. Since the diagnostic appearance of post-traumatic stress disorder in 1980 in the DSM, and that decades overturning of Freud's Oedipal seduction theory, which basically posited uh, that the father was seduced by the little girl, or that the father, the little girl fantasized the seduction of the father, and that produced hysterical symptoms. 
Thinking has gone back to Freud's earlier theory, the one he rejected, of incestuous abuse as the origin of historical symptoms, in other words, the violation of the daughter by the father. Wolf's writing, particularly since 1980, has been plagued with this kind of interpretation or with alternative diagnoses. Of bipolarity, for example, following Kay Jameson's very influential theory of creativity and manic depression. So people are always trying to diagnose Wolf. Her most important biographer, Hermione Lee, writing in 1989, strenuously bucked the trend, fearing that the obsession with the darker details of child, Wolf's childhood would inevitably destroy the proper appreciation of her literary integrity and her originality as a writer. <laughs> Jacqueline Rose, the feminist literary critic, however, saw Lee exercising another proprietorial and overtight control on the literary estate in the name of the profession of literary criticism. Wolf, she says, is never allowed to go missing from herself in Hermione Lee's biography. Even Thomas Zass, one can hardly mention his name, but one has written a book on Virginia Woolf, thrusting in his rather shabby and ill-informed awe, reading Woolf as grist for the mill of his right-wing anti-psychiatry diatribe, dismissing her as a malingerer one who's simply cashing in on the kudos associated with the idea of creative madness. But Sass himself was also buying into <clears throat> a kind of iconisation of Wolf that has been going on for a very long time. It's evident when you read his book on her that he hasn't actually read her novels <laughs> and he doesn't even get the details of her life right. She was photographed by Man Ray for Vogue's roll call of influential people in 1924. She appeared on the cover of Time in 1937. And she's been subjected to further portraiture ever since. Hers is still the best-selling postcard in the National Portrait Gallery shop. Um, she appeared as a kind of invisible demon in the Burton Taylor film of Albie's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? in 1966. So she's remained perennially fascinating as a compelling amalgam of female aristocratic beauty, doomed talent, sexual fluidity, feminist politics, polemicist, bohemian, suicide, something dangerous but now safely contained in books that really only highbrows read, and that's certainly the implication in Thomas Zatz's book on it. But no one in any case, perhaps, is afraid of madness that is so safely mantled in the guise of the cons consolatory theory of the wound and the bow. The communal reinstatement of the mad and afflicted as long as they can renew the stultifying cultural imaginaries of the census communists. The artist is afflicted, but the affliction is um, compensated for by the extraordinary talent, the capacity to play or to sing or to, or to produce magical words, music. It is ordinary unsung madness, perhaps, that most threatens the status quo. But how mad was Wolf's voice hearing? Our knowledge of the exact nature and content of her voices is sketchy. In her diary, she admonishes herself to write strictly from fact when she's creating Septimus Smith in the, what she calls the mad parts of Mrs. Dalloway. She said she had to squint at the page to manage it because she had to go into very difficult memories of her own. 
We know that Septimus hears the voices of the dead, of Evans, his friend who's been killed in the war, of birds singing to him in Greek. But we'll never know exactly what Wolf heard. The birds singing in Greek appear in her husband Leonard's memoirs and in her nephew Quentin Bell's biography. We know from her diary that the, her voices often felt as if they were flying ahead of her, sometimes commanding her to do wild things, and in composition, sending her reeling across the page, as in the writing <coughs> of The End of the Waves, where she feared that they were becoming, she said, the horrible voices of her earlier psychotic states. Sometimes the voices were ecstatic, watching the sunlight dancing on the wall in her room in Richmond when she was first married, she heard the voices of the dead and felt, she said, the greatest rapture. Her cook, Louis, reported constantly hearing her talk to her characters. She raged and argued for years with the dead voice of her father until the writing of To the Lighthouse. And the voice of her mother, she also heard every day. She was obsessed by her, she said, but passively, hauntingly, a voice that also obsessed her until the writing of the novel that laid them both to rest. So we don't know much about what she heard. But in text after text, she uses art as a means to enact and communicate the agonies of, her, of the private soul wrestling with its demons. On Being Ill, an essay published in the Criterion in 1966, somewhat reluctantly, by T.S. Eliot, while she was writing to the lighthouse. Although it purports to be about physical illness, <coughs> is evidently a thinly disguised account of, psych of psychotic experience. And I've, I've given you an example on the handout. She talks about how in illness, this is the first um, uh, quotation, that things change their shape. The tools of business grown remote, the sounds of festival become romantic like a merry-go-round herd across the fields. Friends have changed, some putting on a strange beauty, others deformed to the squatness of toads, while the whole landscape of life lies remote and fair like the shore seen from a ship far out at sea. And he is now exalted on a peak and needs no help from man or God, and now grovels supine on the floor, glad of a kick from a housemaid. And she goes on to talk about how in illness, words seem to possess a mystic quality. Wolf often talks about this, that as she writes, words seem to grow real, take on a kind of sensuous quality that has a materiality about it. We grasp what is beyond their surface meaning, gather instinctively this, that, the other, a sound, a colour, here, a stress, there, a pause. Incomprehensibility has an enormous power over us in illness more legitimately than perhaps the upright will allow. In health, meaning has encroached upon sound. Our intelligence domineers over our senses. But in illness, with the police off duty, we creep beneath some obscure poem by Malone or Dunn, some phrase in Latin or Greek, and the words give out their scent and distill their flavour. I think the key um, argument in this essay um, or, or the point that she wishes to communicate, is there, is there isn't, she says, a language for illness. Illness is unsayable. And particularly, I think, what she's talking about, which is her own experience of, of psychotic breakdown. 
In psychotic breakdown, the person seems unreachable. There seems no language with which to describe it, to bring it back into the other world. When she was writing Mrs. Dalloway, she, she was also writing an essay on Montaigne's indirect and elusive means of finding a public voice to articulate what he sees as the slipperiness of the soul. The phantom is out of the window in a flash, he says, before the pen can capture it. She finishes the essay on Montaigne, suggesting that the whole purpose of this essay is to convey the, the, the idea that communication is health, that all of us need to somehow communicate the depths of our souls. And that exact phrase is repeated in Mrs. Dalloway um, that was published the following year. Um, interestingly, in Mrs. Dalloway, it appears in a passage of free and direct discourse. We're not sure who is saying communication is health. And this is an example of the kind of double voicing that Peter was talking about. Communication is, communication is health could be the voice of Septimus's doctors who articulate... Um, Who, who articulate um, the idea of health as proportion, that Septimus needs to start, snap out of himself. Or it could be the voice of Septimus himself, trying to articulate the anguish of his soul as his message to the world of doom, despair, beauty. The message of his voices goes unheard. Wolf often slips another subversive voice under the voice that seems to be conveying the normative and the orthodox. It's a technique referred to by the um, na Russian narratologist Mikhail Bakhtin as hidden polemic, or ventriloquation, as he calls it. And Wolf herself once remarked that there seem to be two kinds of writers, the soliloquizers and the ventriloquizers, she said. But in Mrs. Dalloway, To the, to, to the Lighthouse, The Waves, and all of the novels thereafter, soliloquy, the mind's colloquy with itself, is always too a ventriloquation of all the dialogic voices that have reflexively been mediated into consciousness as what is interpsychic, the conversations we have in the world, becomes the intrapsychic, the conversations that we have with ourselves. In, Mrs. in, in To the Lighthouse, for example, the phrase of Charles Townsley, women can't write, women can't paint, niggles away in the painter Lily Briscoe's head. But later, it appears as an acousmatic voice, a voice that seems to come from nowhere. It's no longer attached um, to the embodiment in her head of Charles Townsley. It's just a voice saying to her, women can't write, women can't paint. And interestingly, whereas she can cope with the earlier voice, because she can deride Charles Townsley uh, for his snobbery and his class obsession, when the voice appears as a kind of disembodied voice, it's much harder to deal with. It's much more undermining. We all know that voice in our head that's telling us we can't do something, uh, and we can't attach it to a source. And that's exactly what um, Lily's going through. Wolf indeed grasps the distinction that the anthropologist Herbert Mead would fully develop in the 30s between what he calls the singular other, the voice in our head that is attached to someone, to a voice in the world, 
and what he calls the generalised other, our internalisation of voices that have lost their sources and that are often the source of negative thoughts, of, of critical voices that we're carrying in our heads. Wolf's subversive appropriation, this double voicing, is everywhere apparent. As a woman finding it hard to think back through our mothers, where are the voices, she says, of women in philosophy, in science, even in poetry? And she played with the hereditary genius stereotype as the daughter of the irascible and often brilliant Leslie Stephen, referring to her second-hand nervous system. She subverts both through voice and in terms of her relations to the presentation of herself and this iconicity that's being built around her. She brilliantly satirised the infamous rescue of a neurasthenia in Mrs Dalloway, but in her life, she used it, appropriated it, as an opportunity to withdraw into creative mind-wandering. She also, importantly, took refuge and sanctuary, like the traumatised soldier in the battalion, or the Vietnam War veteran in the rap group, in the affirmative arms of the close Bloomsbury group of family and friends, like-minded bohemians, intellectuals and artists. And yet, at the same time, she satirises their more austere tenets of rationality and their ideas about aesthetic autonomy. But it was to the memoir club, closely affiliated with Bloomsbury, that at the age of 38, she first publicly revealed the malefactions, the incestuous sexual abuse forced on her by her half-brother George during the period when she was nursing her father and he was dying. Her later, more detailed description, um, <coughs> sorry, her earlier, more detailed descriptions of the pendulous and flabby folds of a face looming over a young woman are treated in her novel, The Voyage Out, which was her first novel. In the Memoir Club talk, it appears as a shocking throwaway line at the end of a mainly sober and dutiful account of her early years at Hyde Park Gates. That was her childhood home. But again, it reveals as it conceals in daring to flaunt Bloomsbury's own complacent sense that nothing inexperienced would cause a ripple in its tolerant liberal waters. And on, on the handout, there's a, I've put the paragraph from the end of that essay, but I won't read it because... Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll read it. I haven't got time to get through all these. Uh, oh. Yes, it says, she says, sleep had almost come to me, the room was dark, the house silent. Then creaking stealthily, the door opened. Treading gingerly, someone entered. Who, I cried. Don't be frightened, George whispered, and don't turn on the light. Oh, beloved, beloved. And he flung himself on my bed and took me in his arms. And she finishes the um, essay that was originally the talk. Yes, the old ladies of Kensington and Belgravia never knew that George Duckworth was not only father and mother, brother and sister to those poor Stephen girls. He was their lover also. And that's how the, the, the talk ends. Her indirection extended to that most confessional of forms, the diary. The later diaries declared to be variously a confidant, a rehearsal space for improvisation with the pen. But the earliest journals, published posthumously um, as a passionate apprenticeship, began after her mother's death in 1895, when Wolfe was just 13. 
Show Wolf already beginning to master the arts of double voicing and indirection. Immediately after her mother's death, the journal is strictly factual, every page dutifully dated but often left blank, speaking by omission the mute misery of her grief and the confiscation of voices of her voice snubbed out by the heavy draperies of Victorian mourning and the rather more florid protestations and groanings of Leslie Stephen, who licensed himself to proclaim loudly his feelings just as he silenced his daughters. Books and writing slowly became places of refuge. But any glimmer of a sense of returning agency and escape from the numb state of traumatic grief is, instant, is, is interestingly transferred to her writing implements, who are given heartfelt personifications. She expresses her love for Mr Gibbs, her blotter, or her concern about a pen that's been thrown out of the window and may be suffering from dislocated ribs. Direct articulation of feeling there is not, except for the sporadic appearance of a Miss Jan, a kind of imaginary friend, or an alter ego, who seems to be the carrier of negative social emotions, such as embarrassment, but is not allowed to express anything deeper. But another interesting transfer of agency, as it becomes inevitable that not only her mother has died, but also her half-sister Stella um, who was in a critical state shortly after her mother's death and died two years later, once it becomes evident that Stella too, who'd, be, who'd become a mother kind of substitute for Wolf, Stella, that Stella was also going to die, um, she fell ill on her honeymoon, the journalist completely taken over with a preoccupation with reports of accidents, violence in the streets, horrific overturnings of carriages, traffic and people, things being smashed and broken. Again, there's no expression of Wolf's own feelings. The mind refuses to give up its secrets, but the world closes in, fragile, hazardous, precarious. Wolf's later instruction to herself, always externalise, surely had its origins here in the serendipitous and spontaneous grasp of what actually were the techniques of expressionism, the projection of mind onto external landscapes, objects, events, imaginary persons that carry the feelings that can't be expressed. The mind is not simply the contents of thought or even the feelings of the body. The mind is distributed out there in the world, projected onto objects. Feelings are not always felt, but they can be expressed, and that's what Wolf was learning. In all the controversy over Wolf's madness, however, what's almost always ignored is that Wolf had no complete psychotic breakdowns after the publication of her first novel, The Voyage Out, in 1915, nor did she experience full-blown hallucinatory voices for another 26 years until just before her suicide in 1941. Then, in her very private and movingly direct suicide letter to Leonard, she stated simply that the voices had come back. I fear I'm going mad again, she wrote. The Wolf Estate actually refused to allow us to exhibit the letter, but I think we fully understood and appreciated and respected the reasons for that. It is a very private um, letter when you read it. Interestingly, the circumstances leading up to her suicide seemed an uncanny reiteration of her early experiences. The earlier psychotic breakdowns were entangled with deaths experienced as traumatic and in quick succession of her mother, her half-sister, her father, 
and her brother Toby. Unable to mourn, Wolf felt shut away and isolated, a shameful creature creeping around, she said. Like her half-sister Laura, the autistic child who'd been incarcerated and shut away from childhood by Leslie Stephen. Um, and late, in later adolescence, she was put in an asylum where she remained until her death. The hidden shame of the family. Um, so in the years before her suicide, in 1941, there were a similar succession of deaths of intimates. Vanessa's son killed in the Spanish Civil War, Roger Fry, her very close and intimate friend, Lytton Strachey, um, who, who'd once asked her to marry him but um, withdrew the offer the next day. <laughs> um, in effect, signalling the demise of Bloomsbury, her safe group, her refuge, if you like, from the eyes of the world. By 1939, Wolfe knew, Wolf knew they were on Hitler's Nazi hit list. Their London house had been bombed and mostly destroyed. Enemy planes nightly invaded the Sussex and Kent coast where they'd retreated to their Rodmel house. And she was isolated. Her life, she wrote, felt like a suspension in a dentist's waiting room, awaiting the inevitable agony but not knowing when it would come. There was no future. When Wolfe committed suicide, writing had stopped. The ongoing flow of time, the self-making that is a self-overcoming, that enters the flow of time and its rhythms, had been brought to an abrupt halt. As she hinted many times throughout the diary, for her, without writing, existence could have no meaning. My Writing Saved Me is the heavily ironised title of, of Sass's book, but did it? Wolfe's longest periods of psychotic illness accompanied the agonised writing of The Voyage Out that went through six drafts and took seven years, but which Wolfe ever after shied from. It was, she felt she'd given too much away. It was too raw, too personal, despite its attempt to disguise the descriptions of Rachel's dreamy absorption in her piano playing that gradually break down into full-blown uh, psychosis at the end of the novel, she disguised them as um, Rachel catching a fever and becoming delirious and then dying from the fever. But in the writing, she, she conveys the experience of psychosis. And I've, um, I've put a short passage from there so that you can see. Um... Oh, yes, it's, it's, it's passage three. Um, this, is, this is Rachel talking... This is the fever being... Rachel's state of mind in the fever. The room also had an odd power of expanding. And though she pushed her voice out as far as possible and somet until sometimes it became a bird and flew away, she thought it doubtful whether it ever reached the person she was talking to. There were immense intervals or chasms, for things still had the power to appear visibly before her between one moment and the next. It sometimes took an hour for Helen to raise her arm, pausing long between each jerky movement and pour out medicine. Helen's form, stooping to raise her in bed, appeared of gigantic size and came down upon her like the ceiling falling. But for long spaces of time, she would merely lie, conscious of her body floating on the top of her head and her mind driven to some remote corner of her body or escaped and gone flitting round the room. I'll say a bit more about this in a, in a minute. From the voyage on, 
Woolf saw the need to challenge the conventions of the realist novel. She felt she couldn't do what she wanted to do within that form. Plot, character, narrative voice, especially narrative voice. And to displace the conventional directness of this early novel, which she felt had given too much away, had revealed too much of herself directly. In a letter, she said she found her voice in 1922 writing Jacob's Room, which is acknowledged to be her first experimental work. And she's using voice in the sense of her signature style. Um, but she said it was too experimental. The novels are kind of cubist experiments where Jacob is presented by multiple perspectives, but where we never really find out who he is, find out what he's thinking. And the narrator in particular is presented um, through a feminine voice that's shut out of his life, not only shut out of his mind, but can't enter into the various haunts um, of his existence. Declaring herself more and more feminist in 1916, Woolf already intuited an in intimate connection between voice and the novel, voices that had arisen from her earlier abusive and patriarchal experiences, and power. This was well before her essay, Professions for Women of 1933, when at the age of nearly 50, she finally and violently threw her ink pot and managed to kill the domestic phantom of femininity, the angel in the house, who, she said, whispering in the ears of women, telling them they can't write and they can't paint, had rendered them incapable of hearing their own voices as anything other than a kind of automatic or echolalic playback of the males. By coincidence, in the United States, at um, the time that Wolf was um, writing uh, Jacob's Room, Dubois had also begun to think on the same lines, writing the souls of black folk and borrowing from the anthropologist Herbert Mead the idea of double voicing as an internal process of mimeticization whereby the inner speech of black people dialogically plays back within itself or ventriloquizes the voice of the white man reinventing and shutting down the soul, the multiple voices of actual black folk. The idea of the self as a single voice then in Wolf starts to become a fantasy of unity that is the vehicle of oppression. Wolf's comic picture of the true multiple self in Orlando is of a pile of plates precariously stacked on a waiter's slippery palm, ever approaching the tipping point of a glorious smash. The single voice is the egotism of the dark bar of the eye that falls across the woman writing, the page of the woman writing in a room of one's own. It's the monotonously generalized voice she gives to William Bradshaw, the psychiatrist, likely modeled on the eugenicist Sir George Savage, the voice of proportion that reiterates and asserts its power by refusing engagement with Septimus Smith's voices. To his patients, this is on the handout too, he gave three quarters of an hour. And if in this exacting science, which has to do with what, after all, we know nothing about, the nervous system, the human brain, a doctor loses his sense of proportion, as a doctor he fails. Health we must have, and health is proportion. So that when a man comes into your room and says he is Christ, a common delusion, and has a message, as they mostly have, and threatens, as they often do, to kill himself, you invoke proportion. Order rest in bed, rest in solitude, silence and rest, 
rest without friends, without books, without messages. Six months rest until a man who went in weighing seven stone six comes out weighing 12. I've tried to convey in reading that. I've probably not done it very well. Um, the voices that we actually hear under that voice. Um, Wolf is using free and direct discourse, so mingling voices, the voice of a narrator, the voices of um, characters and other speakers, to ventriloquate, Bakhtin's term, through the narrator's voice, Bradshaw, the psychiatrist, the man with his sense of proportion, but it's actually, the voice is very, very slippery in that passage. It starts out mimicking um, Bradshaw, but it's also sending him up. It's comic. Um, the nervous system, the human brain. We can f imagine him sitting there, kind of coming out with these theories, with his sense of proportion. But as it continues, this, the elasticity of free and direct discourse, this voice becomes an angry voice. This voice is Wolf's voice, really, breaking through. Because break, Wolf had been subjected precisely to this rescue, to this violation of herself. And most of all, being forced to eat huge amounts of food so that she went in weighing seven stone six and comes out weighing 12. That's exactly what happened to her. So that's a sense in which there is a double voicing going on here um, that is immensely complex. And we pick it up through the kind of tone um, as we read, the, the way the, um, the tone modulates through that um, passage. And it's naked anger, I think, at the end. Um, Wolf had undertaken this regime many times, had it forced on her, um, particularly at the beginning. And interestingly, she attributed um, the voices in her first breakdown to her guilt at overeating. So the very thing that was being forced on her as a cure was actually the very thing that she was attributing the voices to. Um, and in Mrs. Dalloway, Wolf extends this double voicing to invent, I think, a completely new fictional voice. Um, a kind of, I think of it as a kind of communal free and direct discourse, where she kind of sings the voice of a community, this community suspended after the war, um, terrified, not yet knowing what its future might hold. But she dips in and out of um, characters' minds, and she bl blurs the boundaries between speech and inner speech, um, so that you don't always know whether it's people speaking or people thinking. But she shows, in, through this kind of double voicing that Dubois and, and me talk about, um, how a kind of um, a community is almost ritually brought into existence, how it fills the voices in people's minds, but also how all of the individuals in this community also speak their own thoughts. She, so she tries to capture voice as a kind of singularity within a multiplicity. It's the modern equivalent, perhaps, of the Greek chorus. She was writing a novel called On Not Knowing Greek, also, when she was writing Mrs. Dalloway. Um, it's a voice that might criticise the social system by capturing its power, um, its power to get inside one's head but also showing people's freedom to express what they are. Um, unlike Bradshaw, this communal voice mingles, but it also listens in and differentiates itself scrupulously 
from each of the many individual voices that appear in the novel. The, thread, the voice threads itself in and out of speech and thought. Inner voices like outer are presented vividly as agential beings attuned to interlocutors, their intentionalities entangling within and outside each individual mind. Vocare, to call or invoke, suggests that voice is always an invocation to another, another whose difference I might try to neutralise or deny through incorporation or containment or just not listening, but to whom I might also listen with attentiveness. Wolf the feminist knew that if Bloomsbury's liberal ideals of the sovereign subject and of equality and diversity took, take flight from and disavow the difference within, the multiplicity of voices that we are, then they might never truly engage with and celebrate the difference without the diversity of actual people. So Experiment with Fictional Voice was designed to educate her peers, to facilitate a more engaged process of listening, an education in more than simply um, a cognitive understanding of mind. She thought of her experiments with voice, though, as scientific, a means of finding things out, but more than simply thought experiments. As a novelist and a voiceer, writing well before Wittgenstein's derisory assault on the idea of um, knowledge or self-knowledge as looking in, literally introspection, the metaphor he believed that had led to all the skewed Cartesian assumptions that had led, misled philosophy of mind since Plato, Wolf knew that novelists don't simply look in, they attune to listening in. She had a lot of fun parodying the idea of the mind as a container or substance, filled with thoughts as things, thoughts as gnats, jumping up and down in a loose net. That's Lily Briscoe at the end of To the Lighthouse. Bats looming in the dark, dirty clothes tumbling out of a cupboard, or a great nerve that illuminates shapes in the dark. When she's talking in Sketch of the Past as memory being the greatest source of her creativity, she talks about scene-making, but she says she calls up a scene and then she fits a plug into the wall so that she can listen in. Creativity as listening in, though, carries its own perils. In her 1919 modern fiction essay, Wolfe exhorts her reader, for a moment ventriloquizing the voice of science, to examine an ordinary mind on an ordinary day. In the next breath, she describes the mind in visionary terms as a luminous halo. For Wolfe's exploration of the process of the ordinary mind is inseparable from her sense of the close proximity of the states of mind involved in creating fiction to those experienced in her episodes of visionary or psychotic voice hearing. Reflected in her fear of the voices flying ahead as she raced to complete the waves, the idea is more intensely encapsulated, however, in her repeated use of the word queer. And it's only when I recently reread Wolf's entire work that this, this word kept leaping out at me. I'd never noticed it before. She uses the word queer again and again, but not in the sense in which we'd understand it now. She uses the word queer for what is evidently a description of the experience of the uncanny. And it's a, she uses it in a way that resonates with the way in which Carl Jaspers, in his 1913 um, important textbook, The General Psychopathology, that first tried to ex explain 
um, pre-psychotic experience. In terms very like the passage I've read you from The Voyage Out, where perceptions slip, where things loom and then disappear into the distance, where there's a strange atmosphere, where things seem lit up, where words start to lose their meanings. And it's, he says it's a prelude to the onset of psychotic states. But this is exactly how Wolf describes. She uses this word queer to describe the place she goes to when she's writing her fiction. It's the place of creativity for her. She lowers herself gradually, she says, into the queer space of composition, and within 20 minutes she's there. She sometimes describes it as swimming underwater. It's a place before language, where shapes loom and bodily rhythms emerge before she finds the words in which to put them. So rhythm is at the heart of this. Her mind, she says, shuts down at this point. It stops receiving impressions. And then something springs, something emerges. This is another word she uses a lot, the word emerge. Um, and strangely, it seems the absolute counterpoint to the way in which she described her feeling in the period after her mother's death, the abuses of... Um, George and also her other half-brother Gerald earlier on, the fact that he, she wasn't allowed to mourn, she came out of it, she said, a broken chrysalis. She was something, and she, she looks back on her childhood um, and, and perhaps as this sort of golden place almost in, in Sketch of the Past before this break occurred, before the chrysalis was broken. But when she's talking about creativity... She describes it in very similar terms as a kind of incubation, a sort of pupa, and then the wings of a butterfly appearing. Interestingly, she also describes her feelings um, before the, the psychotic breaks as the flap of wings happening in her chest. So this kind of, and she called the waves um, originally, it was called the moths. So these, these images are tangled in interesting ways. I think more often, though, Wolf describes this place, this queer place, this queer zone, as a great cathedral. Sacred, timeless, in which she's free to wonder and marvel. And she's perhaps invoking the wondrous memory palaces of the medieval mind. The importance of rooms, a room of one's own, in which to place and facilitate uh, and recall and creatively recompose flashes of memory. Um, past experiences, give them a context and attach them to feelings and sensations, behaviours and meanings, make them integral and meaningful. But in using the image of a cathedral, although she professed herself to be an atheist, she's evoking, of course, associations of the sacred and the visionary. Wolf recognised that in entering this space of intense memorising, she could call up and then reconsolidate, reshape, integrate memories that previously simply appeared as images, flashbacks, sensorily loaded and disrupting the sense of the primary reality of the present. And that's how she describes Rachel's sense of acute dissociation in The Voyage Out. And of course, Pierre Janet's work on dissociation was published before Wolf was writing, and it was recently discovered um, and has fed into um, the um, work around post-traumatic stress disorder and the exploration of dissociative, dissociative states that accompany or follow traumatic experiences, in particular showing how abuse, particularly uh, sexual abuse in early life, 
often mediates distressing voice hearing in people in, in, the, in, in later years. And I think it's into the lighthouse, the novel that enacts and works through traumatic grief, um, that she, she most explores and presents the, these ideas about creativity and memory. Interestingly, she makes us feel the grief. We kind of enter the mind of um, Mrs. Ramsey, who is the mother figure, uh, Julia Stephen, kind of reworked in the novel. Um, and through this free and direct discourse technique, we kind of are taken into Mrs. Ramsey's mind. Um, and then suddenly she's snatched away. Wolf kills her off in a kind of parenthesis in the middle of the novel. And we kind of feel... We feel the loss. You know, how dare she do that? How dare she just take her away? She's gone. She wants us to feel something of that feeling that people have um, when loved ones die. Well, Wolf's ongoing problem, I think, and she writes about this all through her diary, is how do you hold these two worlds together? How do you go into this queer zone that's so absorbing, so compelling, so almost teetering on the brink of... Um, Van Stimmung, the pre-psychotic, this uncanny space, without slipping entirely out of the ordinary world. Into the lighthouse, Lily struggles to keep the ordinary perceptual world in a vice-like frame as she dives into the waters of annihilation, as she calls them, to call up her intense memories, her feelings about the past ten years ago and her involvement with Mrs Ramsey before her death. The last part of the novel is written to convey a split-screen effect as Lily stretches mind and body looking out to the ship, um, Mr Ramsey and the children finally um, going on the voyage to the lighthouse in the perceptual present as she's diving into, her brush dipped into her memory, she says, she dives into the creative queer zone where she loses personality and where we're told her mind moves rhythmically uh, deep below the surface. Traumatic memory, and Lily is traumatised by the sudden death of the woman she loved, just as Wolfe was traumatised by the manner of her mother's departing and her own memory of laughing when she's taken in the room to see her body, um, is explored for the first time fully, I think, into The Lighthouse. And that's the novel where she said she finally laid to rest these voices that had haunted and obsessed her. In this kind of memory, traumatic memory, whether it, what kind of distressing experience produces it, uh, like the cathedral space, is timeless. There's no here, here, there's no there, there, there's no now, now, there's no then, then. So Lily is struggling to convert time into space, to place memory in a structure. And like the work of the memory palace, it's also a struggle against ontological annihilation. In psychosis and intense states of creativity, there's a loss of distinction between memory and perception that induces a sense... Um, a, loss of, sorry, a loss of distinction between memory and perception that induces a sense of the loss of embedded spatial proprioception, this sense that we're kind of grounded in, in an actual world that we can feel and touch and see all around us. The loss of distinction between memory and perception brings a loss of temporal grounding. We're floating free in time and we're floating free in space. And that's why she has this kind of airy feel in the cathedral. But to be ungrounded can also be a scary 
disorienting experience, an experience of, 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 of psychosis. And, of course, this is the source of flashbacks in traumatic memory. Um, that loss of temporal sequence, that loss of context, that loss of integration of the memory means that the memory recurs, but it feels as if it's happening in the present. The, the person undergoing traumatic memory has the same feelings, the same sensations, the same emotions, and they are so powerful, it feels like they are in the experience. And, of course, this is what Wolf's trying to capture. In normal episodic memory, there is a narrative, a sequential arc, a sense of context, place, and time for the memory that distinguishes here and there, then and now, this and that. And these are words used again and again in, in, in Wolf's writing. But for Wolf, the queer world often felt more real. And this is an interesting observation of, of William James, who said that in our sense of ontological prioritization, because he, he believed in ontological pluralism. We enter different realities all of the time. But he says we, we have a sense of a primary ontology, that we're here and now, we're in our body, we're real, because of that sense of being grounded in the body, being in a time, being in a space, proprioceptive, kinesthetic, an embodiment in the material world. Visionaries, voice hearers, and some writers like Wolf risk losing this sense of ground. Even Wolf's experiment with and commitment to a free and direct discourse, I think, feeds into this. Because in the end, free and direct discourse is an ontological transgression of levels of narrative. It's a transgression from the authorial voice that seems, we assume, stands in the real world, the material world, and the, or carried by the narrative voice, and the mingling with the voice of the character who is ontologically positioned in the imaginary world of the story. So, yeah, I'm finish that. Sorry, I'm about to finish. Um, um, and so there's a kind of transgression of ontological boundaries um, that Wolf puts to all kinds of effects. But nevertheless, experiencing that as your mode of writing, as you experience this lowering of yourself into this queer zone, is undoubtedly um, an ontologically disorienting experience. So the absorption that might allow for the revisiting and reworking of traumatic memory through a tension that holds two worlds together but apart with the quiet rhythm of the pen and the brush that keeps the writer bodily connected and in control of the process is nevertheless a risky one. Not simply the strain of keeping the two in conjunction. And Wolf said in her suicide note, I can't fight it any longer. But again and again, in her diary, she talks about the strain of trying to live in two worlds um, simultaneously. Um, there's always this risk of slipping away into this Wahnstimmung, this uncanny space. Eudora Welty first noticed that risk was the key word in Wolfe's novel To the Lighthouse. And Wolfe often uses the image of a ledge over a dark sea, the waters of annihilation, Interestingly, when she writes about suicidal feelings in the diary, she says she feels as if she's on a windy height, a thin ledge um, over um, dark waters, exposed in a bright light. And this is exactly how she positions Lily Briscoe 
into the lighthouse before she embarks upon the final completion of the painting. Interestingly, and I don't want to make too much of this and do the psychobiographical reductionism that I talked about at the beginning, her first experience of being abused by her half-brother, um, Gerald, was on a ledge outside a kitchen with a mirror opposite um, ooh, in Talent um, in, in Talent House, where To the Lighthouse is set. Um, and so this image of the ledge is the image of risk. It's the image of risk of the creative process. It's the image of risk um, being on the edge of, of psychosis. Um, interestingly, in To the Lighthouse, um, I think this mingling of voice allows her to... Um, because she says she sees the novel as a place where she can work out emotions and feelings. She splits them up, she gives them to different characters. But a lot of the dissociative experience in the novel, she actually gives not to Lily Briscoe, the artist, but to Mrs. Ramsey. And I think it's because in the novel, Mrs. Ramsey is presented as a ghost. She's already dead. And I think that's why, because in Wolf's Head, she's writing about her dead mother. And there's a strange way in Mrs... Ramsey's always looking backwards, always lost in memory, always absorbed. And in the character, in, in the novel, she's the character who has the voice-hearing experiences. She hears her own voice as someone else's. She thinks she can read thoughts. Um, she hears herself on the other side of a window when she's looking out. She has lots and lots of um, strange voice-hearing experiences. And I think Wolf is trying to say something about having... Um, the lure of that kind of dissociative mind-wandering that takes you out of the world and how it is the pen and the brush that actually hauls her out of it and keeps her in the real one. That Lily casts aside the women can't write and the women can't paint and she makes herself something. But she also says, as William Banks is looking at her painting and she feels embarrassed because she says... The painting is the residue of her 33 years. But she realised she has articulated her soul. She needn't walk down the lonely path of, of, of life. One might walk hand in hand, she says, without ever marrying. So that kind of communication um, that she yearns for, she achieves through her, this displacement into her, art, into her art. And she resists the phantom of the angel of sin in the house of domesticity that Mrs. Ramsey's trying to pull her into. So I think Wolfe did, like Mitchell, get her characters talking with each other. But as a voice hearer, um, I think she also knew that as tenants or strangers to whom one extends hospitality, they might also refuse to leave. They might even take over and annihilate the host. Well, the hostess, perhaps. But they allowed her as a writer fully to tune in, to listen to the precarious polyphony of consciousness that she presents as the self. And I think they allowed Wolf to hear what for her was the deepest sound of all. And this is a mysterious and resonant phrase. She calls it the singing of the real world. Okay, thank you.